This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Welcome to another episode of Press One for Nick. Your host, Nick Limsdahl, is the Director of Contact Center Solutions at VDS. Through conversations with customer service and customer experience leaders, Nick and his guests exchange insightful stories, best practices, and invaluable lessons they have learned along the way. Welcome to the Press One for Nick podcast. My name is Nick Glimsdahl, and my guest this week is Ben Gertz. Ben is the Director of Learning and Development at AW Companies, and he also consults on learning and development, specifically call centers that have up to 500 agents. Ben, welcome to the Press One for Nick podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Nick. Yeah. Uh, so I always ask everybody at the very beginning, what's one thing people might not know about uh, my guest? And so, Ben, what's one thing people might not know about you? I'm a, a bit of a guitar nut. So I, I own about 16 guitars and I, I also build them as well. So I spend a lot of time out in the garage putting those together and, and building them by hand. That, that is, um, for one, I, I have a guitar and it looks really good uh, in the corner of my room, um, but it collects a lot of dust. And uh, so being able to not only play, but build uh, is pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah, they, they do look good in the room though. They're, they're great decorations <laughs> as well. <laughs> and, and nobody else will be able to see this, but we're, we're on video right now and I can see all of these amazing guitars in this background. So very cool. But the one question I have for you is if you could play one last song, uh, what would you play? Uh, it would be Fade to Black by Metallica. That's the song that got me into guitar in the first place. Okay. Okay. And, and why that song? I, I love it. That's uh, what first really introduced me to a genre of music that I really enjoyed and was the first time that I remember seeing Kirk Hammett play guitar and I was like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to yeah. play guitar. <laughs> so I that was that song. That. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it would be, uh, it would be fitting. It would also be kind of poetic, right? Because it's Fade to Black if it was the last song, but also the first one that got me interested. Nice. Nice. I'll, I'll have to have to go back and, and listen to that after the recording, but uh, the one thing that um, really intrigued me was what you do with learning and development. Um, you know, I, there's a lot of people that talk about learning development and talk, uh, hey, we should really train our people, right? Like, let's, let's find a way to put that in budget or uh, let's focus on our employee experience and, and, and we'll keep digging into that. Um, but somebody who's an expert, I, I wanted to have you come on because of the things that you're doing, not just in learning development, but throughout the, the entire process of it, in, including remote work, so, which is definitely important today. But you know, before we get started, what is learning and development and why is it important to you? Sure. So I think learning and development, are, it's really the efforts from an organization towards uh, a person's ability to perform, to understand and synthesize knowledge and the, the infrastructure that's specifically built around that is how I would really look at learning and development and why I think it's important. And I think we'll break this down throughout this uh, conversation as well. But the, the core reason is I think it's it's missed a lot and uh, it's, its significance is, is really in its investment into the employees. It's going to return in productivity. It's about the uh, it has effects in uh, retention and attrition. It, it really has its hands in everything that an organization does. And I think that not only is that beneficial from a practical perspective from a business, 
but uh, I think it becomes even more important when we look at kind of the data and what's happening in the industry and begin to see that this, this may be an area that a lot of organizations miss. Mm. Yeah, obviously you are a, uh, you, you love L and D and you think it's a, it deserves the, the C-suite recognition, but why is that? Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I'm a big, I get kind of excited talking about that one because <laughs> I, uh, I believe, yes, that a CLO is, is needed, uh, a chief learning officer for, for most companies. Um, the reason that, that I think that is because learning and development does not end in the classroom. It's something that we look so much at traditional learning by traditional learning. I mean, going to a classroom, be taught, go into whatever the job is and, and perform. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you isolate that, it, it's really fragmenting your learning across an organization. Whereas uh, I believe that you should really look for learning and development opportunities outside of the classroom. It takes place in all different facets across the organization. And it's a beast. It's something that a, a training manager isn't going to manage necessarily. Uh, it it's really requires some pretty strategic thinking and operations uh, to be effective. Yeah. Um, and, and I agree with that, but why, let's say that there are, there obviously are C-suite people who do not value uh, that. Why do you think that's the case? I think there's, uh, there, I can speak anecdotally from some of the conversations I had with, with C-suite executives. And I know mm -hmm. that if you kind of get the typical, it doesn't generate revenue. I think that's a big, big one that I come across as a, as a barrier. Uh, with that though, I think there's, I think when you look into that, though, the value may not be in, in direct uh, increase in revenue, but it's certainly in uh, attrition costs. It's certainly in retention, uh, increased efficiency and increased productivity, decrease in errors and cost on those fronts. So there certainly is a dollar value that you can associate to L&D. That's one of the most common challenges that I that I hear is uh, typically it's not revenue based. So you don't yeah. see it often in the C-suite. Yeah, so you're you're basically saying uh, that the C-suite's always saying, "Show me the money." Show if me I can the money. Follow the money, right? If you can get put me in the classroom and it'll provide this return, we'll invest in it. Absolutely, yeah. That's uh, that's the most common objection, typically. Yeah, and so let's pretend that that the there is no CLO. There, it doesn't get the buy-in from the C-suite. So. If that's not the case, then who is in charge of learning and development? I think the, uh, what was the, there was something that you said that really stuck with me um, in a conversation we had previously about, was it pixie dust or fairy dust? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Pixie dust the, and fairy tales. Yeah. yeah, pixie dust and fairy tales. I think the uh, pixie dust and fairy tales answer to that is everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not, uh, in business though, it's, it's typically the case that you need, well, almost always the case that you need accountability. And uh, because of that, I would definitely, um, I would put this under either HR or I'd put it under operations if you're in like a contact center or something with like a high degree of performance. If you can't have uh, like a director level or a C-suite level or someone that's really taking L&D, I think that's a step. I would rather see that than nothing at all. So if if there's anyone listening who's wondering like where where would I put this responsibility? I would look towards what makes sense for your organization. And, and typically it falls into really like operation directors or mm. uh, into HR. And I think that's a great start. Yeah. So, so don't just put a blindfold on and, and throw a dart against the wall and <laughs> don't say, put a blindfold and don't have the conversation <laughs> that like, we're all responsible for it. Cause we all are responsible for yeah. it at the end of the day, who has the accountability. Yeah. Who, who's got the budget and who's being measured on it for yep. sure. 
Uh, so let's pretend if, if you were the head of operations, would you have a metric in each department for learning and development? I would. Yes. I think in that is a, uh, a very important thing. In fact, there was uh, there was a really interesting study that um, Jack Phillips did. And he was looking at, uh, you can, you can Google this. I believe the study is called the executive view of metrics. If someone who's listening is interested hmm. and it's a, a meta analysis across different C, uh, different CEOs and C-suites across, across the board. And they were able to determine eight specific metrics that are important for learning. And uh, so I'm going to kind of take this from two parts. One uh, to answer your direct question of what are the metrics that I would establish? And two, I hope to kind of also paint a picture as to why I'm so passionate about this and maybe what's being missed also from this study. So I'm going to try to attack both of those, but the, uh, the eight metrics and I'll try to be quick here, but you can, you know, anyone's listening, you can certainly Google these, but these are important, I think for, uh, for that. But the first one is inputs, which inputs is really defined as uh, just how many people have been trained. So we're just looking at kind of the raw data, just like who's coming in, what are those efforts on that front? efficiency is just uh i think a word that the author didn't want to use the real word here it's cost that you know <laughs> like how how expensive is it what's our cost per hour or cost per person through training so you, you want to measure that business impact uh, because you're going to compare that against uh, an roi a reaction so these are these are pretty commonly measured this is like uh, satisfaction surveys employee feedback for how the how the training was learning, which is um, looking at the actual knowledge and skills. So if, you, if you're in a call center, just as an example, you're looking at things like quality metrics, their CSAT surveys, just the general metrics of, uh, of the person. Application, so this is looking at whether or not the skills are being used on the job, kind of using the same analysis. Impact, which are, these are looking at the, this one I'm actually gonna spend just a, a hair extra on, because I think this is really important, because I'm gonna come back to it. Uh, this is, are the programs that we're training, are they tied to our business objectives, our core top five drives this quarter or this, uh, however your, your company set up trimester, those top things that you're trying to accomplish are your training efforts in line with those, that's impact. ROI, which is uh, pretty well known, I think, across the board, but a, a sticky one in training, and that's specifically uh, what, what are you yielding? in terms of uh, like a percentage gain. So these are looking at things like costs and uh, savings down the road and error reduction. There's some great things like that. If, if anyone's listening and not sure, like Kirkpatrick model, take a look at that. That'll help you understand how to, how to begin this. And then finally awards. So these are looking at uh, like, are we being recognized? Um, are we being by either peers in the industry, uh, by, by people internally, other departments, things like that. Um, so those are the core metrics that I would look at. But what I think is really fascinating about this, this study that really took me off guard uh, was that the, they also ranked these eight as what is the most important. And the number one was impact. So are we measuring towards the objectives of the organization? Are we training and being intentional about that? And ROI. And the funny thing there is only 4% of organizations are measuring both of those. So it's, it's really interesting to me when we talk about metrics in this way is uh, why I say this is important, why I say that we should have these kind of metrics in place is because some of the, the biggest values that a company is looking for in training aren't even being measured, looked at, or having any kind of intentional focus on. Uh, 
So yeah, that's my long-winded answer for what metrics would I put in place. Uh, No, I I love it. Uh, But you said between those two, there's only 4% of companies that actually do that. Why do you think that's the case? For ROI, I, I believe I have a very solid answer for that one. And that's because it's complicated. ROI is not easy to measure for training. That has been a, a point of contention. Uh, there's still people who are doing thesis on better ways to get ROI out of training or to measure rather, not get, but to to see it. It, it can be tricky. So I, that one is tough, um, but there are ways to do it. Uh, Kirkpatrick model is probably the most tried and true. It does have its challenges with it, but that is uh, that is a good way to begin that. For impact, that's a question that I that uh, I, I rack my brain around too, because the answer, I'm, and I'm biting my tongue here because I think the answer is a little heavy handed. Yeah. I think that as an organization, if your training efforts are not in line with the business measures and the, the goals, I think that is a, is a leadership issue. I think that if you, that's, to me, to me, that's where if you're, if you need to, it would almost be like if you had someone in the C-suite helping direct training, you wouldn't have this problem, but here we are. And uh, it's, but I do think that's where the issue is, is that that's not often seen as uh, something that's critical towards the success or the mission of the company, but aligning training strategy with your mission, your values, and mm-hmm. where you're going to is, uh, I thought that was out of everything in the study. I think that was the one that I was the most surprised about uh, mm-hmm. that we wouldn't be intentional about that. So I, I think for to summarize, I think ROI is, is complicated, but there's research out there. There's there's things you can do to learn more about that. But it is even with that, the the academics in learning and development will tell you that's a tough one. ROI is just is is confusing, and there's a lot of unknowns with uh, how to how to get to tangible data for those kind of things. And then impact, I think, is a result of leadership alignment. Yeah. Yeah, so it's tough to to do the ROI. Um, the one thing I wanted to kind of talk about too is, let's say that, you know, two questions is, would you incentivize L&D across departments? And then how would you incentivize across departments if the answer is yes? Yeah, I would definitely incentivize across departments. I think that's a, a good way to um, make sure that behavioral change is taking place. And I so yes, that's the first piece of that question. So how I would incentivize uh, would be around these metrics. So mm-hmm. these would be the eight that I would recommend that any company, if, if you're sitting there listening and saying, like, I got nothing ready mm-hmm. for any of this, these eight would be the way to start uh, is looking at the, uh, the input sufficiency, reaction learning, application impact, ROI and awards, <laughs> looking at those, which is a lot, but I would, uh, I would incentivize around that. So all of these are objective. All of these are things that we can actually put some kind of uh, metric or standard around in place. And to help someone begin, I think the best way is to look at where are you currently. So begin looking at uh, like, where are your survey scores? Where are your efficiency costs? And begin working for reasonable targeted goals to bring those down. It can be different for each company, but I think trying to reduce costs pick somewhere around like eight to 10% and try to bring uh, something reasonable to the table like that and put incentives around those metrics. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I think you kind of mentioned like understand what the survey, what your retention, what your other metrics are, and then kind of reverse engineer it to work on that training um, for the company. But what about per department? Is that the same thing? Yeah, each department will have each of these these same metrics. The the one that can maybe be altered would be awards. Uh, you may not have an internal 
department that's doing call center training that gets recognized outside of the, the company. So that one's uh, something that you could you could remove from here, but everyone's going to have inputs or like measuring the amount of formal training that's taking place. Everyone's going to have efficiency in how people respond to that learning. These are, these are really, you can kind of think of these metrics, or at least the way I kind of conceptualize them is like the core value of your training. You're trying to say, we care about who gets it, how frequently do people care and does it work? That's, and then are we getting a benefit from it? That's really like what we're trying to measure. And I think in anywhere that learning's taking place, those facets are found. So I would, uh, to answer your question, yeah, I, I would hold these metrics across each department and I would incentivize on those as well. In a competitive market, does your customer service stand out from the crowd? One way to offer a better experience is by moving your contact center to the cloud. But with so many options to choose from, how do you know which solution is the best for both your business and your customers? That's where VDS comes in and guides you to the best solution. They understand your clients' pain points, business outcomes, and goals. Then VDS designs, implements, supports, and provides 24-7 managed services. From start to finish, VDS is committed to finding the best solutions for your clients' needs. To learn more, go to www.govds.com or find a link in the show notes. Yeah, well, you, you said, and maybe you didn't mention this specific stat, but I think it's 70% of learning takes place outside of the classroom. And yes. so what happens after training? Should there be support? Absolutely. <laughs> a resounding yes. Yeah. That study was from a, a, a group called Towards Maturity. They worked on uh, discovering, they had some issues with that and they, and they discovered like, what does the actual framework of learning look like? And it was 70% of training takes place uh, outside of the outside of the classroom, and then uh, twenty percent is actually from feedback, and then ten percent is actually formal training. Hmm. So I think that's pretty. I, I don't see how you could hear that statistic and not try to rethink your training strategy because you can have the most incredible formal training plan in the world, and you might maybe increase that ten percent number a little bit, but that is not going to. Uh, outweigh science <laughs> you know there's there's a certain reality here that when I look at that I think that you need to look at your organization from a perspective outside of the classroom and say what are we doing what kind of resources do we have in place what uh, are we using any kind of models where other people are are integrated into like so like are we using social learning or mentorship models or how are we facilitating this absorption of knowledge and this replication of behavior outside of the classroom because that's pretty significant. And I, I think that any L&D person should be looking. Uh, I, I want to just pause for one second. I'm not saying that formal training is not important. Having that program is critical. But also, I think a lot of attention is missed outside of the classroom. And I would like to direct a lot of L&D leaders to still focus on the classroom, but really direct your attention outside as well and see what's happening in those areas. Yeah. And my analogy to that is, you know, you go to, let's say, a big annual conference and everybody gets the rah-rah, the, the, the pom-poms out, and everybody comes back out with a, a stack full of notes, and they come back to their desk or their computer, and they got 3,000 unopened emails, and they put their head down, their goggles on, and they say, I gotta finish this, and then it just gets, keeps getting overwhelmed and overwhelmed, and if you don't have an action plan outside of that and saying, based off of what I heard, here's what I'm going to do in the future, and here's how I'm going to plan it, and here's what I learned in my takeaways. And I think the same is true with L&D. If, if 
um, 30% of the training takes place in the classroom, there needs to be another 70% of continuing learning throughout the process. And if it's learning about customer experience, if it's learning about empathy, if it's learning about any other thing, I, you know, I, I just, there's so much things that, that happen outside of the, the initial bang. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's also just consistent with adult learning too, because we, it, I've, I've, uh, I've had conversations with some leaders before that, you know, you hear the, the constant like, well, weren't they trained on this? And I, I often come back with, you know, if you could discover the way to be able to tell someone anything and then they replicate that behavior perfectly, mm-hmm. you belong, you're going to be making billions of dollars. That just isn't how humans are. That's not right. how people react in any situation. And it's, it's, it's something that you need to consider in learning as well, because in the formal classroom, they just will not retain that information. It, it will not have the impact uh, that having a plan that looks outside of the classroom will have. It just never will. That's just not how, how people work. But sure. yeah, I think that study does a really good job of kind of directing you towards that thought process. Yeah, it's almost going back to the C-suite and saying, hey, what did you learn in chapter two of your ninth grade algebra class? Right, yeah. Like, <laughs> what? Like, how is that relevant? Well, because you were taught it once, but you might not know know about it today. <laughs> That's a much nicer way to say it than I'm saying it, which is like... <laughs> yeah, it's probably not super nice either. <laughs> but it, that's a great point, though. I think that's that's really what it is. That's what we're asking them to do. Like you, you were taught this on training day two at hour four on page sixteen. It's like that's mm-hmm. you know, like there's that does no good. How about instead we prepare for that gap and we build tools and resources and, and channels where we can or where they can uh, go to after class through either like knowledge bases, resources with people to make sure that they can get that information then. Yep. Yep. Great. And, and so, um, what is social learning? Uh, so social learning, this is something that I'm, I'm really excited about as well, because I, this really ties into what we've been talking about this whole time. Mm-hmm. The, the simplest explanation I can give of this is it's what's happening outside of the classroom. That's social learning. And it's, it's more technical definition is, is observation of other people's behaviors and how they're problem solving their thinking and being able to replicate that yourself through observation in an informal context. So not in necessarily a formal classroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, although you might be able to facilitate some activities that use social learning, generally speaking, when we talk about it, we're referring to outside of the formal training environment and on the floor, so to speak. Yep. And so what are some examples that you have uh, either that you've been part of or that you've um, experienced um, as a as a student? Yeah, we, we see it all the time in, in the contact center. Uh, people may overhear how someone's handling a customer call. Maybe someone's really frustrated on the phone and they're learning how they de-escalated that situation. And they thought like, oh, you know, I never thought to look in the mirror and, and try to monitor my facial reaction as I'm speaking to not get upset. You know, there's things like that that, that you learn. Uh, a, a simple thought exercise that anyone listening could even do is just think of a time that you've had to think, how would this person think about this? Or how would this person solve that problem? And you altered your behavior or you altered your course or decision because of that. That's a, a small example of social learning. Yeah. And, and I want to go back to what you said in, in a minute about kind of working from home, because typically right now on learning and development and social learning, you overhear something where you can't do that. But um, I want to jump to another couple of questions and then, and then go back to that real quick. But sure. um, do you believe in a mentorship model? Mm-hmm. 
I do absolutely. I think that that is one of the um, one of the easier ways to actually facilitate social learning is to have a mentorship model. So if, if anyone maybe is not familiar with that, we're just talking. This is a pretty simple concept of. Uh, some people call it like a buddy system or whatever you want to call it, where you have someone that you're working with who's effective in their job and they're able to partner with them, learn how they're doing something. And anytime that you're able to do that, I think that's an extremely effective uh, way to train. In fact, I've done some consulting work where I've had people tell me like, oh, our training program is so bad because we don't have any documentation. But then I look into it and I'm realizing that there's maybe not some documentation, but their results are really good. And why is that? And I'm finding out that they're just using social learning. They're using mentorship models. And it's like, you can make it slightly more effective, but that is not bad training. That's using social learning and, and using mentorship is a really effective way. I would encourage people to formalize it and be intentional about how you're using it as in your arsenal of tools for training. Mm -hmm. um, but it is definitely a good model. Yeah, and I had um, uh, Ed Ariel um, on the podcast earlier, and he was uh, a huge proponent of um, the the buddy system. And it didn't matter if it was in the same contact center or not. It, it could have been somebody from a different state. Um, but he saw not just that it improved learning and development, but it improved retention. Um, so there's all sorts of other benefits outside of, of just like, hey, we're going to do a mentorship model because we're going to increase our, uh, have a better experience when it comes to L&D, but there's yeah. other benefits behind it. That's awesome. Yep. Yep. And so what are the risks of uh, learning and development if you did not have it? If you do not have L&D? Yeah. And How much you, time you got, Nick? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of wing it. And this uh, will be a 10-part series. By, uh, yeah. All right. So the question is, uh, are there risks to, to L&D? Or for not having L&D, yeah, being intentional right. about it. Yeah, absolutely. There's risks to that. Um, I mean, financial risk, there's risk to attrition and, and people being frustrated because they don't know how to do the job and, and you can just be paying tons of money to fix those issues. Mm -hmm. uh, it can create um, burnout, especially if you don't have your resources developed correctly for agents to find the help that they need. Aside from that too, I think that you're just risking your, and that's, that's all internal stuff, but imagine calling a contact center that wasn't properly trained and being a customer you risk your clientele you, and you risk your reputation uh, in the industry. I, I think there's massive risks to not only the business, but the brand with missing L and D. Yeah. And what's the old saying? Like, what if we train them and they leave and, 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 and the other person says, well, what if you train them, you don't train them and they stay. <laughs> yeah. I love that. <laughs> right. that's, that's so yeah. true. Yeah. That should be in every one of your slides. Every, every one of your slide decks is just throw that up there at a random time when, when uh, C-suite tries to call you out. I like that. Uh, so kind of going back to the work from home, uh, with everybody uh, staying in and working from, from home, at least a lot of them right now, how have you adjusted your learning and development? The biggest one, there's a, this is another one we could do a whole series on for work from home L and D, but I think if I want to hit the biggest bang for the buck here, uh, it's, this is going to tie back to that social learning mm. because that's, that's the critical missing factor in a work from home model is suddenly we're not next to everyone anymore. And it, it's not maybe as easy to observe how someone else is handling a call or mm -hmm. uh, to just walk into a meeting and watch my, uh, you know, watch my boss maybe interact and problem solve in a way that I, I think is so impressive. And maybe I learned some interpersonal skills from that. 
th that those sorts of things are not in the current context of our work environment. And I think when it comes to learning and knowing that 70% of the, of the content is taking place uh, outside of training, but it takes place because of social learning, I think that's a problem for our current state. And um, how we've been adjusting that is not, uh, it's, it's, there's not really, it's not like they're crazy difficult concepts that we're, that we're altering, but we're just being really specific or intentional about it. And that's doing things like that mentorship model, making sure that there are people who are paired to be able to talk. Uh, that is so critical and it's missed a lot. There's things like making sure that chat rooms where there's opportunities for people to, uh, to communicate with one another in a really specific way though. So we have one that's like the, uh, like the Reddit forum TIL, like today I learned, we do that too internally and we, and we do that with our, our new hires. And that's another just small way for social learning to take place. Hmm. Um, one of the other things that, uh, that a colleague of mine that you were talking to me about that I really liked that I'll bring up here too, is when uh, some people will even take opportunities in the contact center to listen to a high performers call or like a supervisor or leader, whoever it is. And that way, it's kind of like if you were inside the, the building and you can hear how someone's dealing with something, you're, you're being, uh, but the point here is that like, you're being specific about that. They're not going to hear that otherwise. So you need to make sure that there's time allocated uh, for them to be able to listen to calls or to practice some of the social learning pieces. Those are some of the ways that we're adjusting and we've been finding that that's, that's been really helpful uh, so far. Yeah, and I love that too because you can listen to yourself all day and and be like very critical of yourself and maybe not pick up oh well you know what I've I've really done that well or I've improved it from you know a year ago to where I am today because you you are critical of yourself but if I'm listening to Ben and Ben is a high performer I'm I'm taking all these sorts of notes or at least I think I would because I'm like, well, I really like what he said there and what he said there and how he closed that. Here's how that open question ha happened. Here's how he had empathy. Um, you know, I think at least from my perspective that it would be a different conversation um, and a different educational tool. So I love that. Yeah, me too. I thought that was really great when you shared that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the last question I have, and then I, I got, uh, and then we'll close it out, but is what advice would you give someone who is in charge of L&D, but doesn't know how to keep people accountable virtually? So that's, uh, that's a big question. Um, so what advice would I give to someone who's in charge of L&D, but doesn't know how to keep people accountable virtually? And, and, the, and, not, and not have the, the technology that screenshots your screen every five seconds to the big brother stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I have, that's, I have different thoughts on that too. Um, <laughs> but uh, so it, I don't, I don't think that accountability has necessarily changed so much just because we're virtual. Mm -hmm. um, the main point that I, I really feel about this one, and I'm glad that you mentioned that because I think these are related. Uh, when we go virtual, we almost overreact to, uh, I don't see them, therefore I have to micromanage everything. And that is just, don't do that. Like you're, you know, um, and, and I'm, I'm, of course, I'm talking about performers that are in the moderate to high category, not low performers, just like in, in regular industry, if we weren't virtual, you know, you'd still have probably more managing, more uh, performance improvement plan-based things. But in the context of, of just the general performer, I would, my, my advice to them would be uh, to not change what you did if it was working already in the, in the normal contact or in, the, in a normal non-virtual environment. And the reason for that is because 
I think, I, and I've seen this multiple times where, where uh, one example I can think of actually is, is someone had them text them every time they went to break, every time they went to lunch, every time that they didn't receive an email within 15 minutes or checking in because it's, it's how do you keep them accountable? And I see that with, in the training environment too. They think that we can't see them in class. Therefore, now we need to add all this spyware onto their computer. And I, I would say, trust people, in ter- like trust your team that you've hired on, that you've put through your processes to bring on board uh, unless, uh, and, to, and to focus on those things, um, especially in the classroom. I don't, I think that it, it is different if you're using some of the maybe technical advice I would provide there is like use webcams, uh, use some things to be able to see people and uh, to make sure that you can see what's on their screens if you need to, not only, not from a micromanagement standpoint, but from a, are they learning, you know, in the way that I think they should be, are they in the right spot? Do they need help? And you can help them be more accountable if you can actually see what they're doing. Uh, yeah. So that would be my technical side of it. And then more leadership philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and, and it, it, it kind of bugs me because why would they hire them in the first place if they didn't trust them? Uh, yes. and, and they're making them wear a, a, a leash per se uh, and say, Hey, if, if you get further than your desk, you have to tell me where you're going every time you got to go to the bathroom and you got to, you know, jiggle the, jiggle the leash and let me know what's going on. But that yeah. kind of got to wear the cowbell around your neck when you're <laughs> going around. Yeah. I hesitate when I, when I say like to trust them, uh, but I'm not talking about like personally or, you know, and like a deep level, but like you brought them in, trust the processes that they've gone through and, and when they're your employees, you know, that, that is something that I think is, uh, is given until proven otherwise. And I don't think that changes virtually, but I I've seen it change constantly because people go virtual. And I, I that one's always kind of beyond me a little bit, you know, we should, people didn't, they, we should treat them the same really with accountability. Yeah, no, I, I agree a hundred percent. So, uh, Ben, I wrap up every podcast with two questions. Uh, the first question is what book or person has influenced you the most in the past year? And then the second one is if you could leave a note to all the customer service professionals and it, and it's going to reach everybody's desk, what would it say? So as far as the book or person that's influenced me the most in the last year, uh, that is Bob Pike. Um, there's been a few books of his, but the one that I've really been, uh, interested in recently is creative training techniques handbook. I think that has just been a really, he's really practical. And I think that's something that I know just in my own journey in my own career, sometimes I get a little too theoretical. And I think that, uh, he's really good about being like, okay, yeah, what a wonderful idea, but like, how does that actually work in reality and how do we afford this? And I really like his ideas. So he's been a big influence for me. And if I could leave a note to all customer service professionals, what would it say? Uh, I, it would say training doesn't end in the classroom. So what are you doing about it? Mm. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I think that that has been throughout the entire uh, podcast. So I, I, I love that. Um, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you uh, if they want to learn more about what you're doing in your current role or even on the consulting side? Yeah, they can get a hold of me either through LinkedIn. You can find me on there, Benjamin Gertz, or uh, they can email me at benjamin.gertz at gmail.com. Yeah, and then Gertz is G-E-R-T-Z for anybody that is actually uh, looking to get a hold of him. But um, uh, connect with him on LinkedIn and uh, learn more about what what he's doing on the L&D side and pick his brain. He's uh, one smart fella. Uh, But uh, Ben, thank you so much. I appreciate your time and, and I learned a lot and uh, looking forward to keeping in touch and, and, uh, 
keep talking about how we can focus on the employee and, and the L&D. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for having me on. It was really fun, Nick. I really appreciate it. Hey, listeners, can you think of one person who would benefit from the information you learned today? If so, please consider sharing this episode with them. And last, if you would like to receive all the quotes and book recommendations from all my guests, you can go to press1fornick.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Press One for Nick. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and share. Until next time, focus on your customers. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.